John chapter 8, beginning in verse 12. Then Jesus spoke to them again, saying, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. The Pharisees therefore said to him, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. Jesus answered and said to them, Even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. For I know where I came from and where I'm going. But you do not know where I come from and where I am going. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true. For I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Well, then they said to him, Where is your father? Jesus answered, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury as he taught in the temple. No one laid hands on him, for his hour had not yet come. Well, today is Father's Day, and in case you've yet to get your dad a special gift, I've got a few ideas for the old boy. Here are six gift suggestions for Father's Day. And in the event, any of the 18 Adamses out there are listening, I'd be proud to own any of the six. Number six, recliner saddlebags. Recliner saddlebags. Every dad needs this when he mounts his Barco lounger this afternoon to take his nap. And speaking of naps, number five, a power nap head pillow. I mean, this is complete protection for any napping position. Number four, a breakfast sandwich maker. You no longer need to stop at McDonald's for that Egg McMuffin. You can now make your own. Number three, an outdoor popcorn popper. Dad can now pop his kernels over an open fire, even in the fireplace. What a gift. Number two, this is incredible, a make-your-own lure kit. Now Dad can go to the lake and impress his fishing buddies with personalized bait. How about that? And last but not least, an electric broom. Tired of of sweeping up debris and then having to bend over to collect it? No more. Dad can suck it up in his new vacuum broom. Wow, six great gift ideas for any dad. And yet this morning, rather than talk about gifts for dads, I'd like to talk about a father's greatest gift to his child. Which brings us dads back down to reality. Oh, it's a much better diversion for a father to consider what gift he might receive from his child. But the far more common concern or expectation is what a dad might be required to give to his child. And our text today speaks of a father's greatest gift. Now, let me set the stage. John chapter 8 takes place immediately following the Feast of Tabernacles. 
This was one of the three major Jewish feasts observed in the fall of each year. It commemorated God's provision for Israel in the wilderness. At night, the Hebrews during the feast would sleep under the stars in tabernacles or booths. It was a reminder of what their life was like for the 40 years that they wandered through the desert. But each evening during the week-long feast, the celebration in Jerusalem would move into the temple. Four giant menorahs were erected in the court of women, or what John here calls the treasury. This was the area in the temple that contained the offering boxes. There were 13 of them. It was heavy traffic in this area as folks would gather there to make their contributions. Well, the four candelabras that were used for the feast were enormous. They were 100 feet tall with four branches and five lamps full of olive oil set ablaze each night. The lamps were so bright it was said that the city glowed. Like a modern shopping mall, the menorahs generated enough ambient light to illuminate Jerusalem's surrounding neighborhoods. The spectacle reminded Israel of God's presence. The fire by night that guided them for those 40 years of wandering. And each night of the feast, worshipers would come to the temple, waving their fiery torches, playing their music, dancing before the Lord in celebration of the light of life that he brings to our dark world. Well, it was the next day against this backdrop as the priests were disassembling the menorahs that Jesus rose in that very same spot and declared these words, I am the light of the world. He who follows me shall not walk in darkness, but have the light of life. What was symbolized those seven prior nights, Jesus now makes a reality. God's presence was with them, no longer as a night fire, but now God's presence was with them in a person whose name was Jesus. In the temple, no less, in the heart of Judaism, Jesus makes this bold claim. In fact, he used the name God. Yahweh is the Hebrew verb to be or I am. Jesus here calls himself I am, the name of God in the Old Testament, and he shouts, I am the light of the world. As the night fire guided Israel, Jesus is the light of life, God's light to guide the entire world. This was how Messiah was known. He was to be the light of the world. Jesus is here claiming to be the Savior. And this was just one of seven such statements that Jesus made, which John records in his gospel. You see, Jesus knew who he was. Four times in chapter 6, Jesus said, I am the bread of life. In chapter 10, he says, I am the door of the sheep. Again, in chapter 10, I am the good shepherd. In chapter 11, I am the resurrection and the life. In John 14, verse 6, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. And in chapter 15, Jesus declares, I am the the true vine. Make sure you've been grafted into Jesus. Not just here in John 8, when he says, I am the light of the world. But seven times, Jesus makes an I am statement. He was proclaiming to be God in doing so. He was the promised one. He had come from God to do the work of God in shepherding Israel and in saving the world. 
Jesus knew who he was and what he had come to do. And this was important since his identity and his purpose were being challenged by his enemies. Here in John 8, Jesus' claims were opposed by a religious sect called the Pharisees. In verse 13, they tell Jesus, You bear witness of yourself. Your witness is not true. You see, in the Jewish court, for a claim to be credible, it had to be affirmed by at least two or three witnesses. And here the Pharisees are accusing Jesus of speaking for himself. In other words, it's your word against ours. From their perspective, he had no one testifying on his behalf. Yet Jesus says in verse 14 that he doesn't need anyone, that his word is authority enough. He says, even if I bear witness of myself, my witness is true. When a light shines for all to see, you don't need anyone to testify that that light exists. But if Jesus wanted to call a witness to testify on his behalf, he had ample support. He tells them in verse 17, It is also written in your law that the testimony of two men is true. I am one who bears witness of myself, and the Father who sent me bears witness of me. Jesus is saying, if I need witnesses, I have two of them. God the Son is one witness, and God the Father is another. And it was as if the Pharisees were just waiting on Jesus to mention his father. For when he does, they immediately ask him, verse 19, where is your father? And rest assured, they said it with a sneer. It was their father's day surprise. It would be like me asking him, who's your daddy? I mean, they were questioning Jesus' paternity. Apparently, the Pharisees had done some research. They had hired investigators to look into Jesus' background, and they were now aware of the rumors circling about him. Born of a virgin? you got to be kidding. They were unwilling to believe that Mary had supernaturally conceived. And thus, when they speak of your father, they mean Joseph, but Jesus is speaking of his heavenly father when he says, You know neither me nor my father. If you had known me, you would have known my father also. But here's what I want you to notice. Throughout this exchange, Jesus appeals to his relationship with his father to support the claims of who he was and what he had come to do. This is why he says to the Pharisees in verse 14, For I know where I came from and where I am going but you do not know where I came from and where I am going. It was Jesus' relationship with his father that gave him his bearings, that enabled him to know the truth about himself, where he was from, and even where he was going. God gave the world the gift of his son, Jesus. But to Jesus, God's son, the father gave a gift. He planted in Jesus an internal compass. Jesus knew both his origin and his destiny. And this is what kept him on track. He was grounded in the truth that came from his father. You know, I've heard it said, the three most important realizations in life are knowing who you are, knowing where you came from, and knowing where you're going. 
Jesus gleaned all three from his father, and that's where our kids get the same insights from their dad. You see, the Bible teaches that when Jesus was conceived, God became a man. The eternal son of God became a child of time. The divine became human. Yet how much of his infinite knowledge did Jesus carry with him to earth? Surely as an infant, the baby Jesus learned to speak. He learned other things as well. Luke 2 verse 52 sums up his childhood. He increased in wisdom and stature. I assume that means that Jesus studied in school, that he memorized scripture. Yet how did the divine intermingle with the human? We're not sure. When did Jesus realize his true calling? One major event in Jesus' life was his baptism. It was his father in heaven's affirmation. When Jesus came up from the water, the dove of the spirit came upon him. As the father spoke from heaven, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. This confirmation where he came from, that he came from a heavenly throne, and this set the stage for where he was going, even an earthly cross. And no sooner had Jesus risen out of those baptismal waters that God's spirit led him into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And do you recall the first temptation? Don't say turn these stones to bread because there was an earlier temptation. For Satan told Jesus, if you are the son of God, turn these stones to bread. If you are the son of God, Satan wanted him to doubt his identity and try to prove himself rather than trust in God's word. And it's the same with us. Satan tempts us to doubt who we are and who God has made us to be and live a life of striving and confusion rather than abiding in faith. This is why the most important gift a father can give to his child is the knowledge and assurance of where he or she came from and where he or she is going. It's called stability, emotional security. And it's something that fewer and fewer children these days truly possess. I mean, in a sky with no North Star, how do you plot your course? If the map has no coordinates, it's worthless. And this is what our world has done. It's removed the fixed points. We've negated marriage and redefined family. Today, you can deny your God-given anatomy and choose your own gender. It's truly anything goes. And for a while, it's fun to play with no boundaries until you fall off the cliff. For life does have predetermined rules. There is a true north, and your kids need to know the standards. This is a dad's job, to give his children reliable bearings. I mean, just to know that I, as a human being, am not the result of accidental biological circumstances. That my ancestor was not some chimpanzee who discovered one day that he could stand on his hind legs. Or worse, that I'm not the byproduct of an electrical reaction in a primordial soup, but I am the idea and image of a loving creator God who has purposes for me, who wants a relationship with me, 
this truth can instantly alter the trajectory of a life. And this is the job of a father to instill this realization in the mind and heart of his child, to show his children that there is a God, that this God loves them and has a plan for their lives. This affirmation gives human life value and meaning. It sets us up for morals and respect for others. And without these truths, hey, it's all just a guessing game. Life becomes a wild goose chase without the goose. Recently, I read an article on the Focus on the Family website entitled, The Real Job of Dads. It begins, a dad's primary underlying job isn't control, it's to validate his children. And to validate means to give value or to prove one's worth. This is a father's job. A father's involvement in the life of his children proves to them the legitimacy of their place in the world. You see, a mom has carried her child in utero. I mean, she's carried the child. Her continued involvement is expected. But for a man to devote himself and his resources to that child's protection and welfare gives that child significance. Without the dead, the child feels lost. I've heard it said of girls, it's not a father's job to teach his daughter how to be a lady. It's to teach her how a lady should be treated. That's because a daughter learns to interact with the world around her through her interactions with her dad. And a dad's validation is especially vital to a son. A boy desperately wants to be approved of by another man. And if he doesn't get that validation from his dad, he'll seek it elsewhere. From a peer or a coach or some activist. A father's validation is crucial to a young man's maturity. A father's acceptance is strategic in its influence. Over their lifetime, he validates his kids in multiple ways. Even as a grandfather, I'm learning that his impact remains. In fact, it even grows. As we raised our kids, I stressed to all of them that they were not only made in God's image, but they were made in our image as well. They were Adams's, and that meant something. We made being an Adams a big deal. It comes with a calling. There's certain things Adamses do and don't do. I taught my boys that Adamses don't quit. We're not afraid of hard work. We don't give up when the going gets tough. We stick with it to the end. Kathy taught our daughter that Adams girls don't let their emotions get the best and control their actions. They stay grounded. We taught our kids that Adamses go to church. It was never an option. You're an Adams. You go to church. We created an identity that challenged our children to live by the values that we felt were important. And it's now interesting to hear our sons telling their kids, you're an Adams. And this is what Adams now do. In Little League, we even have an Adams number. At one time or another, all our kids were number 14, which happened to be my jersey number in high school. 
And it's amazing that today, without any coaxing from me, my kids now having my grandkids wear number 14. Being an Adams means something. In fact, the other day I noticed my daughter-in-law had even gotten into the act. A few years ago, my sons and I, we were out playing golf together, and I found four caps that read Adams Golf. I passed them out on the first tee. We wore them together all day. I think that's the only time we wore them together. They threw theirs away afterwards. I think they thought it was corny. But I still have mine. And I know they wear Adams in their hearts. For I made it my job to carve out for my family a healthy and affirming and inspiring identity. You see, our dad's real job is to validate. That is to bring value to his children's lives. And he does it in a thousand ways. A dad validates the legitimacy of his child's feelings when he stops to listen to them. He validates his child's place in the world when he acknowledges and spends time with that child. He validates their efforts when he gives them his approval. He validates a talent his child might possess when he provides them an opportunity to use that talent. He validates their autonomy when he cares about their likes and dislikes. And to validate, I found that you don't have to pretend that your child is smarter or stronger or more talented than they really are. You know, modern parents are so worried about their child's self-esteem that they often lie to the kid and exaggerate their kid's giftedness and feed their little arrogance. In the name of self-esteem, we can turn our children into spoiled brats. No, true validation comes from being, not from being told that you're better or that you're best. You know, even if you are, you won't be best for long. Somebody else is coming. No, true affirmation comes by bestowing on my child the glory that comes as a creature made in God's image and loved by God enough for him to die in their place for the forgiveness of their sins. My, that's the ultimate validation. See, a father's job is to steer his child in a Godward direction, to plant a biblical compass in the heart of that child. Children are live wires that need to be grounded. They need to understand that life is a gift from God and the parameters that he set are for our good and for his glory. I like that quote from the Focus on the Family article I mentioned earlier because it reminds me that my job as a dad isn't to control, it's to validate. And often I get the two confused. At times, I withhold validation to control or to manipulate my child's behavior. Or I'll give them validation only when they fulfill my selfish expectations. And without realizing it, I'm creating little human doings rather than human beings. The only validation some children receive is doing things dad's way rather than them being who God created them to be. Here's what can happen. A dad fails to validate his kids, and as a result, he ends up trying to control them. Take Julie, the teenager who rarely spends time with her dad thanks to his busy job and frequent trips. Her dad felt guilty about it and bought her an expensive laptop He thought he was showing her love. 
But his daughter was desperate for a man's attention. And since she couldn't get it from her dad, Julie used his gift to post sexually suggestive photos of herself to get the male attention she craved. And here's the kicker. When the dad found out about it, what Julie had done, he got angry and he took away her laptop. You see, instead of validation, he resorted to control. He thought he was loving his daughter, but her needs were unmet. And this gets repeated by dads over and over. Our goal is not to control our kids. I'm not trying to run my child's life. I'm trying to help them realize their God-given place in the world and reach their full potential in Him. This week I ran across an interesting observation that I think illustrates the outcome of a validating parent. Someone said, the evidence of good parenting is a child who has no desire to be famous. Think about that. In essence, a parent has done something right If that child feels no need to sprout their wings or find themselves or sow their wild oats, but like Jesus, they know who they are and they know where they're going. Don't you want that for your child? Real validation is reminding your child of God's image in them, the glory of their maleness or their femaleness, the unique beauty of who and how God made them the value they possess as the object of their Savior's sacrifice and the possibilities expressed in God's desire to walk with them and fellowship with them. They are human beings made to fellowship and walk with God. Life is a reason to rejoice. I've heard it said, it is important that we know where we come from because if you do not know where you come from, then you don't know where you are. And if you don't know where you are, you don't know where you're going. And if you don't know where you're going, you're probably going wrong. And we have a country full of kids today who are headed the wrong way. For I hope you realize the world today doesn't care about the healthy development of your kids. It doesn't see children as made in God's image and loved by the Savior. Society today views people, your children, as voting blocks and as categories and as consumers and as political pawns to use and manipulate for personal and selfish gain. Notice what Jesus says to the Pharisees in verse 15. You judge according to the flesh. I judge no one. You know, it's sad that today's world, as never before, judges according to the flesh. This is the environment in which our kids are being raised. Kids are judged by superficial standards. They're pressured by arbitrary and irrelevant measurements. In his I Have a Dream speech, Dr. Martin Luther King uttered the immortal words, I have a dream that my four little children will one day live in a nation where they will not be judged by the color of their skin, but by the content of their character. What a noble aspiration. Yet in many ways, we are as far from being that nation today in June 2021 as we were in August 1963. Tragically, for our woke culture, it remains all about the color of our flesh. 
In the eyes of modern Pharisees, judgments are still made according to the flesh. Today, if you're white, it's assumed you're a racist. If you're black, you think you're oppressed. If you're Asian, you must be good at math. If you're Hispanic, you might be legal. If you're a man, you're a misogynist. If you're a woman, you're wanting to break the glass ceiling. In other words, rather than learn a person's name, rather than get to know their underlying passions and principles, it's easier just to stick a label on them and pigeonhole a person. This is why stereotypes are the tool of the bigot. By fostering assumptions based on the flesh or outward characteristics, you can dehumanize people that you don't like. You can separate how you treat them from how you think you should be treated. In other words, you can justify a prejudice. It's interesting. Jesus says in verses 15 and 16, I judge no one. And yet if I do judge, my judgment is true, for I am not alone, but I am with the Father who sent me. Jesus is the one person who could have judged, for he had access to the all-seeing and unclouded eyes of God. And had he judged, his rulings would have been just by virtue of his innate justice. But Jesus said, I judge no one. Unlike this world, he judges no one according to the flesh. In other words, Jesus cares enough about people that he loves them enough to look beyond their appearance or their category or their grouping to the thoughts and intents of their heart. And yet people didn't treat Jesus like he treated them. This was the mistake the Pharisees made with Jesus. They definitely labeled him according to the flesh. See, rather than get to know who Jesus was, And what made him tick, they stereotyped him, and then they canceled him. Sound familiar? They answered the question, could he be the Messiah? By generalizing, rather than getting to know him. And over the course of his ministry, they slapped all kinds of labels on Jesus. Oh, he's a Sabbath breaker. He doesn't keep our laws. Oh, he's uneducated. He had no rabbi. He didn't attend the approved yeshivas. They labeled him a Galilean. Prophets don't come from Galilee. He was from Nazareth. Nothing good comes from Nazareth. They figured Joseph was his father. Thus, he didn't have the proper social standing. See, as long as they could label and typecast Jesus, they could dismiss him. But the folks who followed him were those who got to know him. They ended up believing him to be the Messiah. And yet, despite how the society of his day treated Jesus, he lived in a different way. He said, I judge no one according to the flesh. Jesus used a different standard for validating people. In John 10, he calls himself the good shepherd who knows each sheep by name. Jesus understands us, our idiosyncrasies, our peculiarities. He knows what makes you you. Prejudice paints a person with a broad brush, but love paints by the numbers. It recognizes the nuances of a person and chooses the shades of color carefully. Love understands that each of us is God's special creation. For just as the creator makes no two snowflakes or fingerprints identical, no two people are exactly alike. 
Recently, I read a quote from an Arab actor. He said, at times, stereotyping happens not because of any nefarious reasons, but rather because people don't know who you are or where you come from. So they go for the broad strokes about you, your culture, your faith, all that. See, people are too selfish with their time and effort to really get to know you. So they go for the broad strokes. And this is why parents have to be different. Like Jesus, a good dad avoids the broad strokes and pays attention to the details of his child's personality and perspective. He spends time getting to know his child and he helps that child get to know God. A father should be a man on a mission. He should be pointing his kids to Jesus. And not only does a dad remind his child of where he's from, he also aims him toward where he should be headed. Phil Calloway recalls a date, May 31st, 1986. It was the day he met his firstborn son for the first time. He touched his tiny fingers, counted his toenails. There were 10 of them. He looked into his son's eyes. They were blue like his dad's. Phil writes, that's when it hit me. I heard a voice that said, Callaway, for the first 25 years of your life, you've been a hypocrite. You've been close to the church, but far from God. You are holding in your arms the one person you'll never be able to hide from. If you think this little guy won't see it, you're naive. You know, if you ask Phil Callaway when he became a Christian, he'll tell you May 31st, 1986. For that night, he got on his knees and he prayed, God, make me real. I want my son to hunger and thirst for righteousness, and I want him to learn it from me. Today, Phil gives the following advice to young dads. If you want your son to love God, you love him first. If you want your son to obey God, you obey him first. Did you know that kids are born with a baloney meter? They are. They can detect fake a mile away. See, a dad can be flawed and still do his job, but he has to be genuine. Phil realized the truth that every dad needs to understand. You cannot take your child any farther than you've gone yourself. Said another way, Every father should remember that one day his son will follow his example, not his advice. A dad's life needs to validate his faith. Because of his father's influence, Jesus could say, I know where I came from and where I am going. And this is the greatest gift that we can give our children. Not just an identity, but a destiny a goal, an objective, a reward. We can stretch a tape across the track and point our children to the finish line. Of course, as they get older and become adults, whether they choose to run the race or finish the heat is up to them. There comes a point when that's beyond their parents' control. But I can be sure that my children know what the trophy looks like, what a victorious Christian life looks like in real life. This is why I want to finish well. 
I'm running a race and I want to finish well. I just don't want to tell my kids how to finish. I want to show them and in a manner that helps them realize its true worth. As one man put it, my father didn't tell me how to live my life. He lived his and let me watch him do it. A good dad etches an example into the heart of his children and grandchildren that they'll never lose sight of or forget. Over the last year, I've been caring for my elderly parents, and I've seen up close and personal the rigors of aging. As some of you know, getting old is not for the faint of heart. People tend to grow cynical and get grumpy the older they become. That's not how I want to finish. I want to stay alive to God. I want to live by faith, not fear. I want to love more lavishly. As Paul said in 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. That's how I want to finish my race. In his classic tale, Alice in Wonderland, author Lewis Carroll puts the following words in the mouth of the mischievous character, the Cheshire Cat. He says, if you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. (laughs) Listen to that again. If you don't know where you're going, any road will get you there. This could be the anthem of our modern world. We no longer seek God. We no longer trust his word. We no longer look to him as the answer to our questions or the solution to our problems. We no longer know where we're going. And because of it, we struggle down roads that lead nowhere. And it's from this aimlessness that we need to rescue our children, especially our young men. Boys need purposes, goals, ambition. And it comes most often from a father, at least a father figure. A boy needs a man in his life to know how to walk in confidence, to know what love requires to do what's right when everyone else is doing what's wrong. He needs a man who's been through the fire to lend him the steel he needs to endure it himself. A son gets his bearings. A daughter feels secure when they walk with a man who knows where he's going. Brian May was the lead guitarist for the rock group Queen. He's considered one of the best guitar players of all time, right next to Paul Miller. And he's played the same guitar since 1963. At the time, May was looking for an electric guitar, but he had no money. So he and his dad decided to build one. Harold May was a craftsman and an electronics engineer. And what he and Brian achieved was a masterpiece. It took them two years to make their unique guitar. The neck consists of wood from a hundred-year-old fireplace. It has wormholes that have been filled with matchsticks. The guitar's body was made from a strong oak table. Even mom's knitting needle and buttons are part of the instrument. And it all combines to create a tonal quality unlike any other guitar. May's Red Special, as he calls it, may be the world's most famous electric guitar. But for me, what makes the red special so special is that it represents what can come from a father and son and the bits and pieces of life. This is what I'm after with my kids. 
and my grandkids. I ran across a great, great quote that fits with May's guitar. I believe what we become depends on what our fathers teach us at odd moments when they aren't trying to teach us. We are formed by little scraps of wisdom. And this is why I stand by my kids. This is why I hang out with my kids and stay involved in the comings and goings of their families in hopes that I can grab some bit or piece of life and blend it with my devotion to Jesus and come out of it with music and harmony that will enrich their lives. I want to leave my family a gift. I want them to know where they come from and where they're going. We learn from John chapter 8 that even Jesus, the Son of God, was profoundly affected by his relationship with his Father. Thus, if Jesus was influenced by his Father, then dads today can have a serious impact on their kids. My final thought is from verse 20. These words Jesus spoke in the treasury. And the words that dropped were treasures themselves. How rich we would all be if we know who we are, know where we came from, and know where we're going. Dad, let's give these treasures to our kids. Father, we thank you for your word to us this morning.